the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Well, good afternoon and greetings. Thanks for coming along for the Wednesday, January 10th edition of The Ride Home. It's a funky day out there weather-wise, isn't it? It's damp. Mm-hmm. It's cold. Some, it's a mix of, it's a wintry mix, I, I had guess. to call AAA. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, tell me what's going on. Remember that flat tire from yesterday? Yeah. It was just, since yesterday was was kind of a bad weather day, AAA was dead. Completely, like, barraged. Inundated. So I decided, since the flat tire is in my driveway, that I was just going to call this morning. Okay. So they were very nice. They called this morning. I had to wait a long time because, again, my car's in the driveway. It's not like I'm in the middle of 279 or the turnpike. Or I understand there are people who have higher priorities. Of course. Issues. Accidents, dead batteries, Issues, all right. those things. So, anyway. Hey, but uh, I'm glad you mentioned AAA. Uh, a little shout out to the AAA office out there in Monroeville. That's a great crew. Is it? Say, uh, I've dealt with them twice in the last six weeks. Okay. Excellent. AAA. Good yeah, for them. It's a high quality place. All right. Road I rode, though. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway. Um, so, if you were out Side, dealing with something related to the rain and cold. I'm with you. Very nice. Okay. We stand in solidarity. We do stand Mm -hmm. in solidarity. Mm -hmm. But we have a terrific show coming up on today's Ride Home. Our good friend Ralph Crew will be with us in just a little bit. He is the um, writer for Practical Engineering. He's the lead writer, which is a YouTube channel that talks about things that maybe you wouldn't daily think of but you probably daily use. Yes. Like well things like bridges, things like railroads, things like sewers, sewer, sewers uh, things like your automobile, like whatever it is. It's really fascinating stuff. And I know that we have listeners who love when Ralph comes on the air. So we're going to talk to Ralph today about that. Also, in his free time, he's a birder. <laughs> Who doesn't like the birders? Well, I do like the birders, but I, I'm i not one, and I'd like to know how he ended Maybe up Maybe Ralph will help change that. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's a Ralph crew coming up. Right. In the second hour, Dr. Daniel Bennett. Do, did I say doctor the wrong way? I said it doctor, strangely. Doctor, my eyes have seen the <laughs> That's Jackson Brown's it best is. song, don't you think? It's an excellent song. I love that song. The opening. Uh, Dr. Daniel Bennett, how Christians can prepare for the 2024 election, other than putting your head in a hole in the ground. Look forward to that segment, uh, five o'clock okay. hour. Yeah. Yeah. And celebrity birthdays, John. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Happy birthday to whomever the celebrities may be. Yep. All right. It's going to be good. Without further ado, though, Kath, the news stories of the day, it is a big one. Please uh, give us the top four at four. For Wednesday, January 10th, 2024, Mm -hmm. still sounds weird. Number one, U.S. and British warships shot down one of the largest barrages of missiles and drones yet fired by Yemen's healthy rebels into the crucial Red Sea shipping lane, while U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken continued his efforts to prevent the conflict in Gaza from escalating. The overnight healthy attack came a week after the U.S. and an international coalition warned that continued attacks by these Iran-backed rebels would come at a cost. The U.S. military has prepared options to strike the group. The barrage 
barrage, including 18 drones, two cruise missiles, and one ballistic missile, caused no damage or injuries, says U.S. Central Command. How about that? Please pray for peace. Oh, my God. I mean, seriously, the world is just out of control. Blinken, meanwhile, sat down with uh, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank as part of a tour through the region. It also included half a dozen Arab states as well as Turkey. Of course, the Biden administration's goal is to bring Israel and Arab nations together and harness their influence in the region to prevent the war in Gaza from spreading. Read more about that at today's Wall Street Journal. Number two. Ecuadorian President Daniel Noboa declared a state of emergency and imposed a nationwide curfew Monday in response to what he described as an internal armed conflict amid escalating gang violence throughout the South American country. I mean, this is a crazy story. The escapes of two prominent gang leaders is what kicked this off. Um, It included, and by it, I mean the whole uh, violent conflict included explosions, prison riots, police kidnappings, and armed gangsters which took over a live TV broadcast. Mm, I saw this. Holy crazy. Naboa has ordered the country's armed forces to execute military operations under international humanitarian law. That's from today's dispatch. Doctors at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center disclosed in a statement yesterday that Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was diagnosed with prostate cancer in early December, and his hospitalization last week was the result of complications that developed from a surgery he had to treat it. Um, He was under general anesthesia, and of course, the reason it's a story is that nobody knew about it, right? right? Including the president. Um, The president was informed last Friday of of Austin's early January hospitalization, but didn't not know about the cancer diagnosis till yesterday. Wow. So he found out at the same time we found out, which probably isn't a good, not good. chain of command. I think you check in. The White House ordered a review of administration procedures. I think that's probably mm-hmm. a wise idea of making clear the cabinet secretary should inform the White House if something like that should happen. That's also from today's dispatch. Number so four. Cabinet yeah. members don't punch time cards. No, I don't think they do. Mm-hmm. No, but apparently they don't write little notes to the president to put on his desk either. <laughs> And number four, a man wrongfully convicted and imprisoned for, wait for it, 44 years has reached a $25 million combined settlement with a central North Carolina city and the state of North Carolina involving a lawsuit accusing authorities of misconduct. And that is your top four at four. I mean, you hear about these stories. Can you imagine spending your life in prison wrongfully accused of a crime he didn't commit. Can I give you a couple details? Ronnie Wallace Long has gotten a public written apology from the city of Concord for its role in his imprisonment. They said that they are deeply remorseful for the past wrongs that caused harm to him and his family. They're trying to right the wrongs, et cetera, et cetera. Long is now 68 years old. At the time... He was a young black man living in Concord when he was accused of raping a white woman. An all-white jury, handpicked by local law enforcement leaders, convicted him of burglary and rape in 1976. And at the age of 21, he received two life sentences. Wow. Now, he was helped for years in this case uh, by the Wrongful Convictions Clinic at Duke University's Mm -hmm. Law School. His attorney said that more than 40 fingerprints collected from the scene were never shared and did not match his. 
In August of 2020, a federal appeals court ordered a new hearing for him, and almost immediately his conviction was vacated and he was released from prison. And later that year, the governor gave him a full pardon of innocence. Amen. 44 years. So, uh, I mean, he's going to get a lot of money, but 46 years of your life? Right. I mean... Gone forever. It's it's absolutely... uh, So he is suing in federal court in Raleigh, accusing Concord police officers of, quote, extraordinary misconduct. Hmm. I'm sure everybody who worked there is long since gone. Probably not even alive anymore. Yeah, probably right. not. Wow, isn't that an incredible story? It truly is. It's a heartbreaker. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, come back and reset. We want to tell you about a ministry here locally in Pittsburgh that's impacted hundreds, if not thousands of people, the Blessing Board. That's straight ahead here. Pittsburgh's Christian Talk on the ride home. It's 101.5 Word FM, W-O-R-D. Two months ago, a good friend of mine uh, was looking for some furniture, and uh, she's not able to work. Uh, she's in her 80s, and uh, she needed a love seat. And she looking around, looking around, looking around. And finally, uh, someone that we know said, hey, did you consider the blessing board? Now, I'd heard of the blessing board because we've talked to people from the blessing board on the air before, but I'd never been there. Um, So my friend said, hey, would you take me? And I said, absolutely. So we spent uh, a morning at the blessing board. and It was a blessing. It was, and I wasn't even there to get furniture myself, but my good friend Nellie was. And it was just such a positive uplifting experience. I know that might sound cheesy, but I don't mean it that way. I mean it it was uplifting to be there. It really was. Um, and so we're very excited to have uh, someone from the Blessing Board with us here. Rich Garland is the executive director, and he joins us on the air right now. Rich, I'm grateful for what you do. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I'm grateful for your comments, and I'm glad your experience was a, was a rewarding one, a positive one for you. Well, Rich, I'll second that as well, because I had an elderly aunt who uh, made a visit to the Blessing Board uh, just a couple of years ago and also had this similar very experience that Kathy just described. So you're consistent in your blessings to us here in Western Pennsylvania. For, for those who are uninitiated, uh, could you explain what the Blessing Board is, uh, how you bring people in, the blessings that they receive and all the machinations around that? Sure. Uh, The Blessing Board exists to provide, to gather and collect and provide free household goods, furniture, and medical equipment to those in need in response to what God has done for us. It is a volunteer-driven organization. Um, So the best description of it is a furniture bank. Mm -hmm. Uh, We collect people, good quality, donated furniture, and then we hold it and those people in need reach out and contact us. We get approximately 400 requests a month wow. from, pe- from people that want and need furniture. And currently we're serving about 150 of them. Uh, they come to us online by referral. Uh, they make an appointment or they schedule for an application for an appointment. And then our appointment coordinators go through the, the applications and schedule them for their appointment on what we call days of blessing. Um, And those are times where people will come in and actually pick out their furniture. Those days of blessing could be twice a week, Wednesday or Thursday of each week, or uh, oftentimes on Saturdays. On days of blessing, those are totally volunteer-driven. We have approximately between 15 and 20 volunteers show up on those days of blessing 
at 8.30 in the morning, and they'll stay till often 2 o'clock in the afternoon loading trucks full of furniture. Wow. Uh, we don't have any qualifications of do you qualify for furniture. Basically, if you can get an appointment and you can bring a truck, you'll be served. Um, so it, that's the only criteria that we have. There's no checking your income levels or anything of that. It's just get an appointment, bring a truck, and we will serve you. On a day of blessing, they'll be greeted by our volunteers. They'll walk in. Um, they'll go through a little bit of of um, registration, gathering some information from them, and then they'll be introduced to what we call the ambassador. The ambassador is the guide for the day. Uh, and they'll walk them through all of the things that they need, you know, kind of get their specifics about the space that they're living in. And then they'll tour our showroom, much like if you go to a furniture showroom anywhere else, and they'll be able to pick out the furniture. The conversation with the ambassador will revolve around what their needs are, you know, colors, you know, what they envision their space to be, but also the ambassador will answer three questions for them. One, what is the blessing board or a Christian furniture bank? We know why we exist. And the only reason why we exist is God, God wants us to exist. The only reason we thrive is because God wants it to thrive. Two, why are they there? We'll ask them, how'd you get here? Oftentimes we'll hear, well, I got here by a truck, you know, it's, you know, my, it's just my luck. You know, my, I've been down for so long. It's just my time, karma, those type of responses. And, and we're very confident that if out of 400 phone calls or out of 400 applications, you're sitting in front of us about to receive furniture you can't buy, we don't owe it to you, you can't earn it, uh, that mm-hmm. God clearly, very clearly today wants to remind you that he loves you. No matter what you're going through, no matter all the heartache, no matter what you've done wrong, today's the day that you're reminded that God loves you. And the third question that we want to answer with, you know, everything going on in the world and people going out and getting their own, why do we have 20 volunteers there donating their time, helping people they'll never meet again? They don't know. Loading trucks from 8.30 in the morning till 2 o'clock in the afternoon, why are they there? And the answer is very clear if you ask our volunteers is God has changed their heart in a way that they can't stay away. They've got to show the love of Christ that they've received, and they're in the same boat as the person they're serving. They're broken and in need of a Savior, and they want to communicate to that to those people that they're serving. So what you experienced of, of respect, dignity, love, and caring is a very deliberate attempt on a volunteer's part to communicate to that to each and every person that we encounter. Rich Garland is with us. He is the executive director of the Blessing Board. So, Rich, when I was there with my friend, um, it was exactly as you said. The process we went through was exactly the one that you've just described. Um, and what I loved about it is that it seemed like it was um, it was from a, a position of abundance. It wasn't mm-hmm. like uh, my friend went in and felt like she had to get the something that she didn't like or something that wasn't really going to work or broken or, down or broken down da- right or something that she had to fix or something that she had to clean or something like it, it was just you know she went in it was just it 
it was kind of like a Christmas Day feeling for her. And after she got her love seat, the person who was helping us, you know, is there anything else that you might like? What about how are you doing with pots and pans? How are you doing with towels? Do you need a lamp? Do you need, you know, and again, it was from a feeling, a position of abundance. And I just, I just really loved that. You know, as individuals, we, we we tend to focus on those things that we don't have. And and uh, I believe what the Blessing Board is teaching us, that is God is abundant and he is faithful to us and that he's willing to allow us to share that abundance with others. And I believe that's really what what God is teaching us through the Blessing Board is as you go out and people that have all of this furniture that they don't know what to do with and they don't know how to get how to move it on to the next space and the blessing board sits right there willing to gather it and bless you by giving you an opportunity to give it to someone in need and then bring it in and share it abundantly with those that that are in need so it's interesting that you recognize that because oftentimes we're just as people we're just worried about our scarcity rather than mm-hmm. the abundance that's all around us mm-hmm. so it's let's talk about the mechanics of this people may be listening right now and say you know what um i do have a couch i do have x and and i would like to pass it along or someone mm-hmm. else is going uh, i could use a couch or so how does that process work if people want to donate or need something uh, uh can you give us contact information website or phone number and such Yes, the the website is theblessingboard.org. You can go there. We just launched a new website yesterday, so it's very convenient, very easy to use. If you want to go to the website to get an appointment, uh, you just click on uh, Get Help. Uh, that would take you to a form that you would fill out, uh, and then that would go to our appointment coordinators, and then they would process those and reach out, get you connected, and get you scheduled for a date to come in to um to donate furniture, uh, you would go to where we have support us, and there's a donate furniture button there that you go fill out that form out, and then our donations coordinator reach out and get you scheduled. We have three vehicles, uh, two box trucks and a van that go all over western Pennsylvania gathering furniture. There is a small fee that it's attached to it depending on how much um, we have to pick up, uh, but it's well below the market. Uh, value as far as gathering furniture, we bring that back to our location, and within a week to two weeks, it's already in somebody else's home. Fabulous. Theblessingboard.org. All the answers to the questions are right there, theblessingboard.org. Rich, uh, also uh, uh, looking at, before you joined us, theblessingboard.org, I understand you have a retail operation for those of us who would be interested in looking at things for our own homes as well. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it, very interestingly, we started that out of the, with when we were gathering furniture. We got a lot of items like antiques and ornate furniture that weren't really moving with our families. Our families really couldn't use that. So we had a group of volunteers that said, hey, you know what? Maybe we would start a market. Maybe we could help generate income for the ministry uh, moving forward. And those volunteers, faithful to their sports, started building it and growing it and launching a social media uh, play with it, and uh, so in our shaler space, we have approximately 3,500 square feet of furniture, which is probably represents less than three percent of the furniture that we gather. 
into a space where the the public can come in it and well below the value of the the retail of it they can purchase that that furniture those items and then those that money generated by that goes absolutely directly into the ministry to support them. and it's growing leaps and bounds last year it uh generated an income for the blessing board of around two hundred fifteen thousand dollars. wow fabulous wow well it's been a real yeah. pleasure to talk to you um and rich we just appreciate uh, again what you're doing Love the and ministry. the impact that it has in our community really thank you rich well, we would love to have any volunteer or any financial support they have, so please go to the website, check us out. Very good. Terrific. That's Rich Garland. He's the executive director of The Blessing Board. Truly it is. Theblessingboard.org. We're going to take a quick break, and uh, Ralph Crew will join us in just a few minutes. Lead writer for Practical Engineering. Always interesting. Stick around. We're underway the Wednesday edition of The Ride Home on Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's Word FM. to welcome back to the show Ralph Crew. He's the head writer and producer for Practical Engineering, also co-boss of Nerd Night Pittsburgh, mm. and a generally curious person. Ralph, we're <laughs> glad you're back. Thank you for having me. All right, so we've talked about Practical Engineering a lot in the show. Practical Engineering is a YouTube channel. Yes, Practical Engineering But we're is... going to put that off until the next segment, okay. because <laughs> okay. we're going to get into another part of your personality profile. Yes. Which is the birding side. Yeah. So you, if those who know I don't me, know what the Venn diagram is between people who are interested in practical engineering and birds. Probably bigger than you'd think. I really? So. Birding, uh, as we call it in the business. Many of you may know it as bird watching, uh, but, but the real hardcore enthusiasts call it uh, just birding. And birding is a much bigger deal than you might think. Uh, I mean, it's, it's millions of people around the country who do it all the time. And especially now with the advent of, of you know, the internet. And how connected we all are. Uh, there's some pretty amazing citizen science projects that that have literally millions of birders involved in it. Uh, one called eBird, uh, which I really recommend. Excellent. Whoa. How about the rise of bird? You know, your bird feeder connected to the internet with cameras and whatnot. Oh yeah. I mean, I think that's really fun. <laughs> that's so cool. It's so nerdy. Yeah, I definitely have a webcam in my house that I may or may not point at the bird feeder that is attached to my window. Uh-huh. Uh, although you do have to be careful with bird feeders. Keep an eye out. Sometimes there are like illnesses that go around. Mm. Also, where you place it if it's at the wrong distance from a window it can make it a bit of a hazard birds have a sure. unfortunate habit of flying into windows so mm-hmm. you need it to be the appropriate distance not too close or too far away from your windows okay but let's start why birding oh so um i got into it uh I, so i studied biology at the university of pittsburgh which was fantastic and i took a field herpetology course so that is the study of amphibians and reptiles and it was out in the field so it was up in uh northwestern pennsylvania just tromping around through the woods and rivers and stuff like that, looking for salamanders and snakes and turtles. And I thought that was really cool. Uh, But when you're not doing it for science, looking for that kind of wildlife is a little bit sort of impactful on the forest. Like, you shouldn't go flip over every single log Mm. in the park every time you go. Uh, So I was looking for some way to sort of scratch that naturalist itch to be able to get out there and identify the living things around me. 
I happened to have a friend who was already a birder, and this is how it starts. Mm. He, he got me involved, and actually, I compete in a. <laughs> this is I know it sounds this too cool to be true, nerdery. but there's a uh, there's a bird a birding competition called the Birding Cup uh, that we compete in every year. It's a 24 hour competition out around the Penn State uh, State College area. Uh, you have 24 hours to identify as many bird species as you can. Mm. And uh, once I did the cup, the first time I did it, <laughs> I lost control of the birding, and now I can't stop. I, every bird I see from that moment on, every time I see one or hear one, I'm always trying to identify it. If I see something exciting, I nudge my friends and tell them what it is, or send pictures, or, uh, yeah. And it's, it's honestly, it's... Why a, is it cool? Why, why does so, it draw you in? It's There's more diversity in birds than most people might realize. You know, like, if you're not a birder, you probably know, you know, robins and sparrows and things like that. But there are a couple hundred bird species that we see frequently uh, throughout the year in Pennsylvania. And uh, it's a couple hundred. Yeah. Right. It's a little bit more than you might expect. Um, And also, unlike other animals, like uh, I find mammals to be very interesting, but mammals cannot fly. So they're very... Mm skittish they'll hide all the time mm-hmm. so uh you, you struggle with that right like if you go out into the woods you might see a deer or a squirrel here and there but compared to the diversity of uh birds that you'll see also compared to how easily a bird will let you look at it because sure. a bird knows it can fly away before you get up anywhere near it so right. uh you just get really great views also as you probably already know birds are migratory and so we get we get uh, certain birds that are only here at certain times of year. These Just passing through. Special. Uh, there's a particular group called the wood warblers, which I'm very fond of. And they're like these little fairies that show up in Frick Park for two weeks of the year. Mm-hmm. These brilliantly colored, beautiful little birds, and you'd uh, you'd never know they were there unless you were looking for them, and they're here just just briefly, and it just, it really enriches the experience of being out in the outdoors, which is something I've always been a fan of anyway. just to get out. So birding can be active, like out in the woods or in a field, or passive on your back porch with a a bird feeder. Oh, yeah, bird feeder, just hanging out. Um, It can be as simple, I mean, I've seen... Just walking around Oakland, around the University of Pittsburgh, you'll see uh, there's peregrine falcons that nest on the cathedral, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Like, you can find unusual, interesting, or just uh, compelling birds anywhere. Whether or not you're actively birding with uh, binoculars out in a forest or a field, or if you're walking around uh, a major urban area, there, there's something to see. And also, even, even at this time of year, in January, uh, this is weird duck season, <laughs> So there's a lot. Is that an actual? Well, yeah, yeah. It's uh, so a lot of um, a lot of our songbirds are are south by now. But for for a lot of the ducks, this is south. Like Pittsburgh is their Mm. fly fly south for the winter area. So there's a lot of uh, especially diving ducks like buffleheads and uh, some mergansers. And if you're lucky, a long tailed duck. Which if you see one, let me know. Uh, (laughs) But um, those they they come down here uh, for the winter. So there's always something interesting something that's not always available that you can go out and, and take a look for okay so if people are listening and go i'm interested in birds but i'm clueless right how do i do- how do i get started uh well my my best piece of advice would be find somebody who's already interested and you know somebody even if you don't think you do because we're not always sometimes especially if you're younger you might not be very forward about how into birds you are but find somebody who's already into it i guarantee they will gladly take you birding birders love uh converting normal humans 
Jones uh, into into the club. And uh, I really, really recommend that. There are, of course, tons of like YouTube videos that you can watch. Field guides are really handy. Uh, I'm a particular fan of the Sibley uh, Guide for North American Birds. Um, and, and is that something that is that an app? So or? that that's a book, you know, what? An, like an on paper, fat, uh, on, on paper. But, yeah, there are some apps, uh, free apps. The Cornell Lab of Ornithology has some really great apps. Uh, Merlin is one of theirs that will identify birds by pictures or even by recordings. A lot of birds have diagnostic sounds that they make. And uh, you can nowadays you can use your phone and uh, Cornell's AI will tell you, oh, that's a great horned owl or whatever bird it is that you're uh, playing for it. Fabulous. We need to step away for yeah, just a minute. We Ralph do. Cruz with us. Yeah, uh, he's head writer and producer for Practical Engineering, also co-boss of Nerd Night Pittsburgh, which we'll talk about in a little bit. We're back with Ralph Crew, head writer and producer for Practical Engineering, and we were talking about birding, but now we're going to switch to the practical engineering part of your profile, Ralph. Sounds good to me. Mm-hmm. So railroads and railroad crossings, yeah, which of course are in abundance here in western Pennsylvania. My family is part of a railroad family. My my grandfather, mm-hmm. uncles all made their living on the railroad. We've yep. got family photos of, you know, a record run from Pittsburgh to Altoona. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and there's a, there's a railroad museum called close to Altoona on the way to Penn State. Have you been there? I haven't been yet, but I did. I, I looked them up. When, so we actually just did a series, uh, several episodes of the show all about railroads, and I, I was definitely looking them up. I, I even considered a trip out there for some for some research, but I haven't had a chance to make it out yet. Uh, but yeah, our, our most recent video is about railroad crossings, um, grade crossings, as they're also called, because the railroad and the normal road are on the same grade mm. at the same level. That's why they call them grade crossings. And uh, they're they're everywhere. You know, in the United States, there are over 200,000 wow. grade crossings. And, uh, and trains, as important and vital as they all are to our lives, are dangerous, right? Like, these are, uh, you know, a 12 million pound object that's a mile long, has a ton of momentum, and uh, you really um, don't want to get in its way. One of the problems that trains have is that they often... Uh, it will take so long to come to a stop uh, that that's beyond their actual sight distance. You know, you can imagine an mm. engineer at the front of a train. Uh, the, the distance that they can see down the tracks may be shorter than the amount of distance it'll take to bring that train to a stop. So these grade crossings are particularly important in keeping people safe uh, around trains where roads inevitably must cross them. And uh, there's some really brilliant solutions that, that railroads have used over the years, especially some older ones from before the age of computers where uh, they use simple circuits using the rails themselves as elements of these circuits to detect whether or not a train is there and uh, lower gates or turn on lights that flash along the crossbuck signs at a railroad crossing. Okay, Okay, so that's the next question then. How does it work, right? A train is a mile or two miles in the distance. You're at a fairly busy intersection. Like um, for us, down at the waterfront in Homestead, Mm -hmm. right? There's a mall there, basically. Yeah. And and the, the... the lights go down. The little thing goes down. I don't know what the, I'm calling it the little thing. Yeah, it's just a crossing arm. Yeah. <laughs> and they're not that little. Actually, they're bigger than yeah. they look. You see them in your car from a little far away, but you go stand next to one of them, and they're huge. Interestingly, yeah, so they, they 
they go down uh, today. Many of these are actually fairly sensitive using um, digital sensors and having computers that make decisions about how long uh, to to uh, sort of give a warning before the train actually gets there. It's minimum of twenty seconds. Usually, it'll be more like thirty or forty seconds. Uh, but in in a, in a really brilliant engineering way, the one of the first solutions is just to use the railroad, uh, the rails itself as a circuit. And then when a train is on the rails, that shorts the circuit. You get this short mm. circuit, and that short circuit can be used to trigger um, a relay, which is essentially just an electric switch. Mm-hmm. And this switch, when it either gets power or loses power, depending on the flavor of relay, it will turn on or off a different switch, which will then either maybe lower an arm or set off a bell or get lights going or something like that. I see. So this is ground zero, Pittsburgh is, because of George oh, yeah. Westinghouse and Wabco and all these things with air brakes and whatnot, yeah? Oh, yeah. And we have just even to, to this day, of course, historically, uh, Pittsburgh is significant in the railroads, all the industrial history here. I mean, we're talking an enormous quantity of uh, of trains have, that have traveled through here and also a lot of technology that was developed for them here. But um, to this day, uh, and we were we were talking uh, before we started uh, that you know just along the Monongahela, the freight rail corridor there sees over eighty five freight trains a day. Wow! And it's it's so it's see I would never think that. And of, of course, I don't it's live. I don't live on the Mon, right? right? So I, I realize that. Um, but my my where we live is kind of above the Ohio Valley, mm-hmm. and so we can we always hear trains at night. Yep. We, we still do, but I still would never guess that the number was eighty five. Yeah, it's so many, but it's also because it is easily the best way to overland move large volumes of cargo. You know, if you've got to, and especially things like dangerous cargo, right? Mm-hmm. You know, railroads. I mean, of course, there have been some high profile. Railroad accidents recently uh, in East Palestine, notably, which we actually did an episode on practical engineering uh, about that. Uh, But compared to highways, even still, uh, railroads are just far, far safer and far better at moving huge volumes. You know, if you think a semi truck is big and they are, you know, they deserve respect on the road. But compare that to a a freight train. A freight train can haul hundreds of semi trucks at the same time. Yeah. Uh, And it's it's just really, really tremendous. And uh, of course, there's so much industry in and around the area of Pittsburgh and so much shipping. You know, you see those giant ships uh, that have, you know, thousands of containers on them. Well, once they get to land, how do we move those intermodal shipping containers? And you'll see them double stacked on trains all up and down the the river valleys around here, which I think is pretty neat. Ralph Cruz with us. We're talking about his uh, YouTube site, Practical Engineering. Uh, this is not an engineering question, Ralph, but I often wonder about this. Uh, the railroads themselves, historically, are their own entity. Right. I mean, legally, corporate-wise, they cross a lot of different barriers that maybe, you know, wouldn't uh, take an effect today, considering their long historical precedents from, you know, their inception back in when. When did railroads have first become a thing of volume? Oh, well, that's a, re- that's a very good question. I mean, it it depends on what you mean by volume, right? Uh, but, I mean, we're talking mid-1800s when okay. the railroads first became... 1850-ish. Like, yeah, 1850-ish, so pre-Civil War. Um, and and then they become a bigger and bigger deal as Pittsburgh's steel industry really blossoms. Uh, you, you end up with much larger volume of railroads. It is interesting you mentioned there, they are, uh, while there are some federal regulations um, about railroads, they are, in general, private companies. They're, mm-hmm. uh, there's, I think, 
seven Class A railroads in the United States. Uh, Norfolk Southern is the one you probably see most often in this area. Um, and yeah, they they own the rails, they own the trains, they, they own operate, bridges, they own bridges, which is unfortunate for a lot of communities. <laughs> That's a whole other story. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and and yeah, uh, today it, I don't know that a railroad could be built from scratch the way that they are. There's certainly a like a historical grandfathered in. grandfathered in sort of thing going on with the land that they own. I mean, imagine trying to buy an uninterrupted strip of land across the country. You know, <laughs> right, can you imagine right. how complicated no, yeah, that right, would, right. that would be? Um, but the railroads do. The railroads do. And 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 I sure am glad that they do too yeah. because our modern lives. I mean, you look around the room you're sitting in and almost everything in this room has been on a train whether or not as raw materials uh, or as finished goods or somewhere in between, you know. Right. Even even the car that you're driving that you might be driving in right now almost certainly was in an auto rack on a train probably near here at some point. Sure. So. And not just in the United States, but worldwide, trains essentially drive the world. For sure. Yeah. If you need overland uh, freight shipping, and you do, you know, whether it's uh, farming, you know, like you'll see huge freight trains full of just fertilizer that we need to to, to feed one another. Uh, but any large industrial thing will, will require trains to move huge volumes of stuff. And uh, we our world just doesn't look the same without them. Right. Ralph Cruz with us, head writer and producer for Practical Engineering. We're talking about railroads. So uh, this might not be practical, or it might not be engineering, <laughs> or it might be a little of both. But I'm thinking of passenger rail. Sure. Um, and, you know, being in Europe... And John and I have talked about this a lot, about how incredibly easy it is to access all different parts of Western Europe by train. Mm-hmm. Um, and you try to do that in America now, and it's really frustrating. It's abysmal. It's I was on the Amtrak here. website just a couple nights ago because my husband and I were taking a trip, and we thought, oh, let's go by train. It's just... Not what you wish it would be. No, it can be expensive and slow. (laughs) But in the old days, I mean, not that old. I mean, in the 1950s and 1960s, still, you could take a train from town to town. For sure. And in many, many senses, you still can. But like like I mentioned, they can be expensive or slow. Uh, I think one of the reasons for that is that we have relatively affordable airfare, right? And, you know, it's not that long ago that air travel was just for the very elite wealthy, right? 60s, 70s. But nowadays, it's not that expensive to just fly. Uh, and what we mentioned before also, you know, Amtrak has to often rent uh, rent the rails right. from these Class A freight railroads. They pull off. Um, and, yeah, and, and just, just routing rail traffic around freight trains who, freight trains are... Uh, priority one. They, they're the priority, and they also, they, they may not run as quickly as a passenger train would, Sure, but if they're on the rail, like, there's no, you know, you can't just, like, pass a train along, along the main line, uh, usually. So, there are limits in place uh, because of that. Whereas in Europe, many of the railroads are owned by the countries that they are within, mm. and they they prioritize high speed rail. That's another thing is that high speed rail is really sort of the way to go if you're sure. going to do passenger rail. Germany, Japan, but uh, those railroads are going to be built to different standard, but both in terms of um, like sort of the shape of of the rail line, the kind of corners that it can take, mm. and the kind of steel that is used, and whether or not other trains are sharing those lines and what kind of stations you need to have and on and on and on. It becomes very complicated um, to, to solve that problem here in the U.S., although I'm hopeful for it. I personally am a big fan of passenger rail, and it's something that I think would uh, it'd be really cool if mm-hmm. it was available 
for for us in a in a more convenient and practical way. Well, John and I have been wanting for years to do the Canadian Rockies trip. I mean, oh please, wouldn't that be, be terrific? Heck yeah. So I've obsessed over the YouTube, you know. Mm-hmm. The, Versions, um, not quite the same as like being there. Not the same, as but being I'm there, still yeah. obsessing over it. Yeah, it's well. I mean, that part of the world. You know, as you may know, I'm a Canadian. Of I have course, that's why I brought it up. In that part of the world. Have you done it? Uh, I haven't done it on the train. I wish I, I wish I had, but I have driven uh, from uh, Banff in Alberta all the way out to Vancouver, and that that sort of stretch through the Rocky Mountains is mm-hmm. absolutely stunning. And there's actually a train feature that you can see along the way called the spiral tunnels. Uh, so uh, trains cannot climb as steep of a grade as uh, a, you know a car sure. or just a person walking around can. So in order to solve this problem, there's a tunnel, uh, actually a pair of tunnels that are that go into a mountain and make a huge spiral and come back no out. No way. So that. Yeah, this this spiral tunnel that, really? um, and and when the train is long enough, it's wild. You can see these two. Uh, they appear. Uh, you know, if you didn't know any better, you'd think they were independent tunnels and and railroad tracks. And you'll see a train sort of going over another train until you realize it's that's the same the train. Same train, and it that's is so cool. it is mind bending. It's really really neat. Um, so you can ch- you can check that out wow. next time you're in Western Canada. Right, exactly. That's Ralph Crew, head writer and producer for Practical Engineering, co-boss of Nerd Night Pittsburgh, which we'll talk about coming up next. We've been talking about practical engineering, railroads, birding, but now with Ralph Crew, we turn our attention to Nerd Night Pittsburgh. Uh, Ralph, you are the chairman, the leader, co-boss, the co-boss. Yeah, there's there's three of us bosses. Mm -hmm. Boss nerd, I think, would be acceptable in the best way possible. I think so. Mm -hmm. Sure. Okay. So tell our audience about Nerd Night. So Nerd Night is it is for grown-ups, right? So it's not 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 a family show. Yeah. Do not bring your seven-year-old. But it is. It's it's an event that we we do usually at Spirit, which is a club in Lawrenceville, which is super hip. And we'll have uh, usually three speakers who are themselves uh, nerds, and they'll give talks on any any topic that is, you know, we think is really interesting and nerdy. And they do it with, it's, it's sort of like uh, a, a TED Talk, but a little less serious. Like mix, mix like TED Talk with stand-up comedy, basically, mm-hmm. yeah. is what it is. Uh, our next one is on February first, by the way. Got to come check it out. And yeah, I mean, and it's we've just only a been delight. to one, just one, and you've done many. Yeah, we we do um, probably I would say every two months. Uh, we we book them as soon as we can get really good speakers. That's that's really our bottleneck. But we think it's really important to get. I mean, there are a lot high of high quality nerds. Yeah, we there are a lot of nerds. There are, a lot but of we nerds. we. Only only want to focus on, you know, put yeah. the ones up on the stage. Well, it that... can be tricky to find a nerd that also will do well on stage. That's right. one of the things. But that's also part of our goal is to help. I mean, first of all, anyone can come. You don't have to be a self-proclaimed nerd to go. But you would gravitate towards it if you were. But if you were a nerd, it's a great place for you to also meet uh, and socialize with other nerds. Yeah. That's part of our mission, too. It's right? a mixer in a way. Yeah, it is sort of like a mixer. Talk about speed friending. Uh, so speed friending is a social game that we do at the beginning. It's, you know, it's optional. You can come to Nerd 
night without doing it, but uh, it's really fun. It's sort of like speed dating, but for nerds to make friends. So. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, there's drinks and great pizza. There's drinks and shockingly good pizza. Yeah, surprising. Oh, I, was, um, I loved it. It has really good pizza. Okay, so February 1st, next nerd night, what's on the menu? Um, well, we have a few different things on the menu. The one that's popping into my head right now, we have a roboticist oh. who's going to really? be talking about some of the uh, uh, you know interesting... Uh, successes and failures that happen along the way uh, being being a, a roboticist here in Pittsburgh, which of course is one of the robotics capitals of the world yeah, really. Right. Um, so we've got robots and we've got a couple other good speakers coming Excellent. up. You can check us out uh, at pittsburgh.nerdnight.com or on our Facebook or Instagram page to find out more. Nice. I mean, it's fairly inexpensive. There's a cover to get in and yep. then you're good to go, mm-hmm. but uh, really a great way to spend the night uh, and nerds unite. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love it. Ralph, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So we've covered birds today. We've covered practical engineering and railroads. Mm -hmm. And we've hit Nerd Night Pittsburgh. Right. So people want to know more about Nerd Night or practical engineering, put it out there. Yeah, sure. So uh, nerdnight.pittsburgh or pittsburgh.nerdnight.com for Nerd Night. And then for practical engineering, just go on YouTube and look up practical engineering and check out our channel. It's a lot of fun. Interesting. Always fascinating, Ralph. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Coming up in the next hour, we're going to turn our attention to how Christians can prepare for the 2020 for election Mm. other than putting your head in a hole in the Uh, ground, which, of course, is my first inclination. Also, coming up at 525, does this make sense? And how many books did you read in 2023? See how you stack up, according to people across the country. It's next on The Ride Home. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Good afternoon, and welcome to the 5 o'clock hour of the January 10th edition of The Ride Home. I read this today, and it shocked me. This first sentence. It seems anywhere scientists look for plastic, they find it. From the ice in Antarctica... To the first bowel movement produced by newborn babies. What? Now, researchers are finding that the amount of microplastic floating in bottled drinking water is far greater than initially believed. Okay, so if plastic is in the first bowel movement of a baby, that means it is deep in the mother's body to pass it along. That's where we are. That we are essentially plastic. Humans are plastic. So how does that happen? How, how, how does... Because plastic has... Here's the weird thing. I think about this. When I think about plastics, I think about the film, The Graduate. Which I've never seen. Dustin Hoffman. Yes. In the film, this guy, Dustin Hoffman, just graduates from college. They have a party for him. The parents, it's mostly his parents' friends. One of his parents' friends in this party, it's like a little montage, approaches Dustin Hoffman and says, it's a very famous scene, one word, plastic, which the guest was saying, grab onto plastic, Mm. that is the future. Well, clearly... Yeah. We are post-future plastic because if it's in the bowels of newborn babies, this is surrounding us at every breath and every step. We are the pollution. 
Okay, so what is you're reading from the today's post? I'm reading from uh, yes, the L.A. Times. Okay. As a matter of fact, using sophisticated imaging technology, scientists at Columbia University's Laramont Doherty Laboratories examined water samples from three popular brands. They won't say which ones, and found hundreds of thousands of bits of plastic per liter of water. This is bottled water, what you're paying a premium for, apparently refined and filtered and whatnot. 90% of those plastics were small enough to qualify as nanoplastic, microscopic flecks so small they can be absorbed into human cells and tissues as well as across the blood-brain barrier. So we have tiny, tiny, tiny cellular plastic in our bodies now. The research published yesterday in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences raises new concerns about the potentially harmful health effects and prevalence of nanoplastics. Researchers found that the quantity of such particles was 10 to 100 times greater than previously estimated. Wow. Okay, well, I hear that story, and I raise it. Uh, This is uh, from today's uh, media feed. It says this. The sandy beaches of Spain's northwestern Galicia region, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that appropriately, have been inundated with millions of plastic pellets, sometimes referred to as nurdles or mermaid tears. That's reported by Reuters. The pellets ended up in the sea when a container fell off the Liberia-registered ship called Takanao. Um, they're the remnants of common plastic items like plastic bags and, as you said, John, water bottles. Um, so people started sending photos on Instagram of these things on a particular beach. Um, the central government in that area said that they were aware of the pellets for more than two weeks before the administration was actually informed of the situation. Mm -hmm. So ecologists are criticizing how long it took people to do it. They found 700, no, they found 70 bags along the coastline weighing approximately 55 pounds each. The bags come from a Polish company, uh, the manufacturer of the pellets, but they had broken, and so they scattered these tiny plastic pieces all over the beach. Each one of them has a diameter of less than five millimeters and are lightweight, and so they're kind of hard to remove from the sand because they're so small, but they're everywhere. So uh, just on Monday of this week, hundreds of volunteers used shovels and colanders to shift through the sand, according to Reuters. 80% of all debris found in marine environments, that's from deep sea sediment to surface, is made up of plastic. It's just hopeless. It gets ingested by marine species who also frequently become entangled in the plastic waste. I mean, it's... So you think about the history of the world, world creation, and then you think about post-World War II. I mean, plastics weren't really a thing until the 1950s Mm -hmm, and truly exploded in the 1960s. So in less than 60 to 80 years, we have changed the complexion of every living thing on this planet. And I don't mean to be an alarmist or to overstate that, but if you read this, the first bowel movements of newborn babies contain plastic. That's so incredible. That changes the world and how we look at things. Well, there's no getting away from plastic. No, there isn't. No, right? of course not. I mean, no. there's absolutely This is no. who we are. This is who we are. Gosh. 
All, all right. right. Here's the good news. Yeah, that, okay, sorry. All right. I mean, jeez, John. Okay, sorry. Well, let's uh, talk about more good news because <laughs> we're going to take a break and we're going to come back, which we rarely do. We've we talked about John Fetterman earlier this week, which is our first foray into politics for a while. But here we are. Mm-hmm. We're going to focus in just a few minutes on being a Christian and looking at the 2024 election. It's straight ahead. We are Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's Word FM. I'm reading today that there is a, um, a presidential debate featuring Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, which will be aired ahead of the Iowa caucuses. Also, uh, President, former President Trump is doing a, a town hall that's going to be televised on Fox. Here it is, January the 10th. We are beginning to be in the thick of things of the presidential election. So the question for this moment is, other than sticking your head in the sand, how can Christians com- prepare for the 2024 election. Other than trying to escape and go live in a cave. I mean, if you follow our show, you know that we try to stay away from this because we lose 50% of our audience whenever this comes up. It is as contentious a thing, I think, in all my life, Mm -hmm. in all the subjects, this pinnacle of this moment, Democrat, Republican, Biden, Trump, or whomever. Since 2016, it's been like that. Yep. So how do we prepare for the 2024 election? Dr. Daniel Bennett is with us. He's associate professor and chair, Department of Political Science and assistant director of the Center for for Faith and Flourishing at John Brown University. And Daniel, please, welcome so much. Bring some clarity and some temperance to our lives. Thank you so much for having me. So when I think of an upcoming presidential election, I said this, I want to, you know, put my head in the ground or escape to another place (laughs) because things have been hard. Uh, You know, I would say 2016 was the first election I remember being just deeply, deeply divisive. They've all been like that since. Um, how do you think, uh, Daniel, a Christian can look at this in a way other than despair? Well, certainly that's the tendency uh, to think that every election is the most important election of our lifetime. Uh, to some extent, that's true. Every election is more important than the last. Uh, but if we follow that extension, the 2028 election will be the most important, and the 2032 and the 2036. So, Taking a long-term view uh, for us as Christians, I think, is the first step toward uh, a better and more Christ-like political engagement. It doesn't mean ignoring the stakes of particular elections. I think Christians can and should be educated, uh, discerning, and wise with their votes. I don't think it's fair to say, well, it doesn't matter who we vote for, uh, you know, things are going to turn out the way that they will. But taking a long view and remembering God's sovereignty in the midst of uh, good times and scary times is a really, really important thing for us to remember. The long-term view. Okay, I mean, I'll take that, of course, because as believers, our hope is in Christ, which is the long-term view of humanity and uh, the universe, right, that we'll be with Jesus one day in this world uh, and beyond. Uh, But in the midst of all this, I mean... Daniel, you know this, the furor, the bitterness, the anger, the ugliness. I mean, things are so ramped up. And of course, what's happened in the past eight or 10 years is that relationships have been shattered because of politics. I think in no time that I remember, I think everybody in our audience has engaged in some sort of vitriol. They've lost family members or close friends. We've reached a newer level here than what's happened in the past. 
Yeah, this isn't something that uh, is going away anytime soon. I think we are right to think about the stakes being high. Even if we do take a long-term view, we can talk about the importance and consequences of elections and be excited about outcomes that we're predisposed toward or fearful about outcomes that we are, are not supporting. Um, but for us, engaging in this political process, we, we can model and we have to model, I think, a, way, a, a better way to the world, to our neighborhood, neighbors, to our friends, to our families. It doesn't mean downplaying differences or washing over differences, let everyone live their truth. That's not who we are as Christians. But goodness, we have an example in Jesus, and we have to start with that. Right. And I think, um, first of all, I want to hear how we might live that out, kind of a a plan of action or a rule of life, however you want to look at that, um, Dan. But prior to that, I think it would be good for each one of us to come to uh, grips with how we've handled politics in the past. Um, None of us have done it perfectly, for sure. Um, But if we do have that large of an influence on our our country, I don't think that in large part we've handled it well. And so uh, could I have your comments on that? Yeah, absolutely. I I do think we tend to uh, impugn our opponents uh, in the worst possible ways uh, and and overlook uh, the the failings of people with whom we might otherwise agree uh, that's just that's just part and parcel of, of political attitudes and political behavior right these are psychological tendencies that we have but first as Christians I think you mentioned a plan of action you know if we're going to take three steps here the first has to be humility humility uh, is the idea that hey you know I might be wrong about this I feel I feel very strongly about this I believe that I do have the right position on this uh, but if you're saying something differently I am going to be humble enough to hear you out not necessarily change my views but to hear you and really listen to the arguments that you're making for the purpose of having a better dialogue. And this bleeds into the second thing we can do as Christians is approach one another, especially our brothers and sisters in the church, with charity and generosity, not impugning people with whom we disagree with the worst possible motives, but rather saying, look, I believe you're coming at this from a different perspective than I am. And even though I think you're deeply mistaken, I'm going to be generous in the way that I think about the motives and your values when it comes to policy choices. And then lastly, very shortly, we have to have confidence in the outcome of elections. If we believe in God's sovereignty and we do believe that God is sovereign uh, over all aspects of our lives, we have to have confidence that no matter the results of an election, God's church will remain until Jesus comes back. Hmm. That's really good. Confidence of God's sovereignty. Uh, But... Daniel, I I hate to return to this, right? But churches have split over this. People have left churches over this. Families have split over it. I mean, the the church itself has been infected by politics. I mean, dare I say the words Christian nationalism? That is a really deep and severe threat to who we are as believers. Yeah, certainly whenever we place our hope in anything other than Christ and whenever we elevate something above our identity in him, whether it's money, whether it's power, whether it's political influence, that tends to corrupt uh, our witness to the world and who we are as a body of believers. I do think we have to be really generous with our pastors these days. Mm-hmm. You know, occasionally pastors get on the news for being overly partisan, over overly political. I imagine most of your listeners attend a church not 
99% of the pastors in the United States today are just trying to shepherd their flock, right? They're not always going to get it right. They're not always going to say the right thing or what you want them to say. But man, that comes back to charity and generosity. Let's pray for our pastors, encourage him or her, and really focus on building up the body. Now, this isn't a kumbaya moment for us. There are going to be splits. There are going to be differences. Um, But this isn't new because of politics, right? Churches and denominations have been splitting over many, many things. I think we can try to overcorrect uh, our, our, uh, our, our tendency to focus more on politics in the pews. And that starts with us. It starts with us as believers and setting a better example in our communities. Okay, so if we don't like how politics is in America, we don't like how people talk about it or practice it or the tone of it, how it's discussed um, or carried out, uh, we can't change that and we can't put our heads in the ground like I was you know, advocating earlier uh, yeah. in our segment. Um, so I guess we just have to focus on what we can control and also, though, Daniel, what we take in. And that's something that I've been thinking a lot about for the last, uh, I don't know, since the last election you cycle. You mean our media diet? What am I listening to and what am I reading? Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Yeah, I do think it's important to just like with your with your diet of food, having a balanced uh, diet every single day. If you find yourself watching nothing but cable news, seeking out political dispute, getting on social media and doing nothing but political political dialogue, you know, maybe it's time to temper that a bit. I'm not saying that we can't and shouldn't do that. I mean, I teach political science, for, for goodness sake, right? Of course, that's going to come up. Um, but if that's all we're doing, right, if you found someone who didn't do anything but read about sports or read about, uh, you know, or global issues around the world, you'd be like, well, what else are you reading these days? Um, so we can model that. We can find people with whom we disagree, uh, but nevertheless respect and take in those viewpoints to say, okay, I, I'm being challenged in a way that I, I feel somewhat comfortable with, even though I don't always agree. Um, but turn off the incendiary rhetoric, turn off the firebrands, uh, and it, it, it does start with you. You can't control what other people are saying or how they're acting, but we as Christians can control our behavior and attitudes towards others. And I think you're exactly right. What we consume affects how we live. Mm-hmm. That's really good. So. Let's talk about prayer, right? I think that if I can see those people who are different than my political stripe as cross bearers as well, those people who are made in the image of God, who love Jesus, maybe they don't even know Jesus, but Jesus is still with them in this presence of this world, right? That, that for, in some ways, helps me turn down the ugliness and the vitriol, the po- finger pointing of that guy and that enemy. I mean, I need that. But... but I, it's hard to do this, Daniel, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to stay close to this and the ugliness of this tone. Yeah, I mean, without letting it infect you? Yeah, I mean... Or affect you? We see it everywhere. It's, I mean, I'm in my 60s, Daniel. I mean, I've, this, is, this is the worst, I think, political atmosphere, you know, that I've ever lived in in my life. And I remember Watergate very well in my life. But we have reached a whole other level of vitriol and, you know, anger towards each other that has destroyed, like I said, friendships, marriages, churches, you name it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I need to see the humanity in other people before I sort of go off on some tangent about those guys. Oh, goodness, right. And, and you're not wrong, by the way. Research bears this out that shows if you measure 
people's, especially elites in Congress, ideological distance between conservatives and liberals, Democrats, Republicans. We're more divided or polarized than at any time since the Civil War, right? So this is not just your feeling. This is this is real. Um, but you mentioned prayer. Goodness, Jesus tells us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. I think we hear that so often that we, and I do this, I, I, I fail to reflect on the meaning of these things. When you pray for your enemies, that's such a radical idea that you would pray for the good outcome for those with whom you strongly disagree and who seek your destruction. And frankly, when you love your enemies, I forget who said this, but when you love your enemies, they cease to be your enemies. Mm. Right. And so if you see someone uh, in the political world, a leader with whom you strongly disagree, whether it's Joe Biden, Donald Trump, uh, your, your governor in Pennsylvania, whoever it might be, if you sincerely pray that they would seek justice and be discerning and come to know the Lord, uh, you could still disagree with them. Right. You could still have sincere disagreements. But if you are sincerely praying for their betterment and f- them finding knowledge and wisdom in the Lord, I think that's going to turn down the temperature a bit. And if there's someone on social media that your listeners will just say, oh, I can't stand that person. They're too you know, conservative, too liberal, too vocal. If you pray for that person, sincerely pray for the good of their hearts and their lives, they cease to be an enemy. And that is such a radical thing, but so simple that Jesus calls us to do. Amen. So what about the out that some Christians have taken that, look, I mean, I understand that you're supposed to, you know, love your enemies, but this is a war. And, you know, we all of the nice, kind stuff has to, you know, we get a pass for now. Well, I mean, uh, it, it's frankly easy to say that uh, when we can couch these terms or we couch these elections in such apocalyptic terms, right? The end certainly justify any means if this is a war for the soul of our country. Um, And, you know, I certainly don't uh, disparage people for, for, you know, falling into that worldview. I, I fundamentally think it's, it's wrong. And I think it's, uh, I think it's decentering the sovereignty of who God is. Um, the American church is a very small element of God's church in the world. Uh, and we are a very small sliver of God's uh, history and his redeeming work for his people. Uh, so it doesn't mean elections don't matter, but goodness, uh, if we're called to be different for the sake of the kingdom of God, uh, it has to it has to infect all aspects mm-hmm. of our lives, including the areas where it's hardest. Right. It's easy to be a good Christian when you maybe are going to church on Sundays and around neighbors with whom you largely agree. But if you can't do it in more difficult circumstances, how hard are you really trying? Yeah. And really goodness, good. I'm convicting myself here, too. Right. So, I mean, this is something we all struggle with, sure. but we have to do it in the hardest times. Excellent. Well, Daniel, thanks for this. Yeah, I mean, we appreciate for, this. For us to look at the long view, uh, that's a necessary thing. Of course, we understand that all elections are important. But what you said about having these three things of humility and charity and generosity, and of course, the confidence in God's sovereignty above all, uh, those are key things as we move forward into 2024. So thank you for your presence and your wisdom here today on the show. Thanks so much. Our pleasure. Truly, it has been. Dr. Um, Daniel Bennett, Associate Professor and Chair, Department of Political Science, Assistant Director, Center for Faith and Flourishing at John Brown University.
does this make sense? Does what make sense? Presidential debates. So there's one tonight. Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis are going to be at Drake University in Des Moines. And I'm not going to watch. Does that make me a bad person? No, not at all. It would make sense to me if there was an element of statesmanship. Yes, that's what I'm saying. It's too dumb, right? It's very dumb. It's one-upmanship and... Shouting. A lot of just like sort of boilerplate talking points. No one answers the question that they're asked. So it just feels like a lot of spinning. Right. And I go, well, what am I even listening for? What's the point of all this? It just feels like ego on parade and one guy or one person trying to be better than the other in some stupefied way. It's dumb. I think so. I want more. I get, want more, too. Give me deeper. And I think it could start with answering the question. Yep. I think it should be the requirement one. Right. Like, you're not, I'm sorry, you're as not answering the like, question. As soon as you, like, go off, you stop, stop. We ask you this. Right. This is the question. Okay, so as it is, I'm saying right now, John, that does not make sense. I have to agree, Kath. I mean, we rarely are in agreement on Yeah, but this but is it. I do. Okay, so to a lesser extent, mm-hmm. does this make sense? Lunch meat? <laughs> 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 I mean, you know, it's. I mean, can you think about chipped ham, bologna, you name it. Smoked turkey. Hard salami. Right. Lunch bologna. Meat. Olive loaf. Yeah. yeah, Pimento loaf. Pimento loaf. Yeah. I mean, you know, you go to your deli at the Giant Eagle or Shop and Save or wherever you're going to get your lunch meat. People eat a lot. Of, I mean, I grew up. I mean, I probably ate chipped ham weekly. Sure. Me too. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, have, I haven't had chipped ham for a long time. Me neither. You know why? Because it doesn't make sense. I like it. <laughs> well, I like it too, but it doesn't make sense. Why? Because it's so bad for you. Well, so is the water. Okay. So is the plastic. <laughs> we just talked about the plastic. So choose your poison, lady. Okay. I'm just saying. I mean, really. I don't, it tastes it's good. A, it's slimy. I don't care. It is slimy. Chipped ham? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, all, lunch, all that kind of lunch meat is slimy. I don't care. I don't like it. I like it. No. It makes perfect it sense to me. It doesn't make any sense. Something that you're eating shouldn't be that slimy. Nope. When my wife moved here from New York, and I was like, chipped ham. She was like, what on God's yeah. green earth is that? are you? I think it tastes good. Did she grow to like it? No. 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 And I never eat it. No, I don't eat it either. But I like to have like a hard salami with like some Swiss cheese or something like that. A salami with cheddar? Yeah, that's good. It's good. Yeah. It's good. Choose your bread. But it doesn't make sense, John. It makes sense. No, it doesn't. In these early days of 2024, it causes, I think, the average person to think back a little on 2023, and you'll see things all over media, which are kind of taking a look back. We did our best of the year. Uh, You did best movies of the year. I did best TV of the year. And so today, uh, I was prompted to think about books because of the Washington Post headline. How many books did you read in 2023? See how you stack Oh, okay. All right. So... Um, David Montgomery, the spork pollster, is uh, discussed in this article. He released the results of a new economist YouGov bowl, poll pardon me, about America's reading habits. Wait, 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 wait. What is a spork pollster? 
I don't know. Spork Polster. Right. That's okay, what it so says. He, he does polling. Yeah. But the polling thing is called Spork. Yeah, Spork okay. Polster. Right. Maybe he does it while he's holding a spork. I see. While he's dining on something that you would only eat with a spork. All right. Just want some clarity there. Yeah. Maybe you'd want like a little... What would you eat with, with uh, a spork fried rice? Yeah, maybe. Probably. Maybe lo mein. Do they sell sporks? Like, you know, you, you buy like a, a spoon, you buy a fork. And... I have a spork that I always travel with. What? Uh-huh. It's like a stainless steel one. Really? Yeah, because you know the places we've traveled. Yeah, you, you oftentimes never you never know where you're going to be. Traveling with your spork. I always I have my spork. All right, but we digress. Anyway, we're talking about books for goodness' sake. Um, so this is what he found: of 1,500 Americans that were surveyed, a less than ideal 46 percent finished zero books last year. 46 <laughs> percent of people started a book. No. Well, what about those who never even started a book? Well, I don't That's even know that, but we're still talking about zero. Okay. 40, 46%. 46% zero books. My guess it was Truman. <laughs> Just saying. Which is, I'm sure, a fine book. Yeah, I'm sure it is a fine book since it read the, won the Pulitzer Prize. 5% read just one. So, if you read more than two books in 2023, congratulations, you're in the top half of U.S. adults. Oh, my gosh. That's, Just two books? That's what we're talking about. We're talking about a low bar. That's a low bar. So, you know, okay. Spotify gives you, you know, your list for oh, yeah, 2023, sure. what you listen to. Right, right. Um, if you're a part of a book app, you can get the same type of data. Oh, yeah. You like know, how many books good you read. Reads, right. right. So, Lex, do you keep track of how many books you read? Mm. I do not, but I didn't read that many books last year, unfortunately. So I do know just yeah. about every one that I've read. Okay, yeah. Good. So I have a problem that I share with you, John, which is that because of our work, we end up starting a ton of books with not enough time to finish them because now we have another book we're working on. Right. And my problem is similar, although it's worse. Because of my age, I'll read a book, forget what I read, and the title. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, just being me. Well, I have a book app, um, and so I read about 35 books this 35 year. 35 books? Yeah. That's not that many. That's a lot of books, Cap. It's not Come that on. many. No, that's, really I'm sure isn't. that's in the top 1% Listen, of Okay, readers. my daughter read 58 or something like 58? that. 58? Yeah. So, Holy moly. But of the 35 I read, I didn't finish them all. How many did you finish? I'm not sure. Okay. I don't have that number. Okay, I've, so you started 35 Yes. Oh, sorry. So okay, I, yeah, yeah. I've probably read half. Well, I could match that. Probably, uh, yeah. Yeah, so that, I was going to say it's not that many. No. I would say I've read half or more of 35 books this year. Okay. That's um, still a lot. I it's mean, still a lot. It is, it is still a lot. Um, but it's not... I, I would just like to be able to finish them. And I just, I get annoyed with myself right, okay, that so I like, don't finish them. So because we are reading constantly for our jobs, like whenever I went to the vacation, on vacation, I went to the beach and I had like three books that I was super excited to read. I got to the beach. I started to read. I put the book down and just looked at the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not a bad choice. No, it was fine. Right. It's not but then like, I came home and I was like... It's not like you're on Instagram instead. No, but I, I researched these books. Okay, what's a good beach book? It's going to be light and right. kind of fun and didn't matter. Yeah. I just looked at the ocean instead. Well, looking at the ocean is better than looking at your phone. Oh, without a doubt. Right? Without it. Everything's okay. better than looking at your right, phone. So Most things are. Let me give you some more stats okay. here. Okay. So if you read five books last year, that puts you in the top 33% mm -hmm. of Americans. Mm -hmm. Reading 10 puts you in the top 21%. For people who read more than 50 books, those are true one percenters. Oh, sure. That's people who read more books than 99% of the American public. Okay, so here's the problem, though. I mean, if you're reading 50-plus books a year, that's, that's a book a week. Um, 
I can read quickly, but I would prefer not to. Right. And I hate to say this, streaming gets in the way. Oh, streaming has totally gotten in the way. Right. Has absolutely gotten in the way. Because you remember the enjoyment you used to have long summer days, especially as a kid or a teen. You'd read a book and, oh, hours and hours and hours. Now. Yep. I'm on YouTube. And nope. I agree. I agree. Okay. So let me get back to the poll here because one of the interesting things is that dead tree books or paper, paper books remain twice as popular as digital. But they're called dead tree books. Well, I mean, that was just a joke okay. in the article. Um, twice as popular as digital books. Makes sense. 42% of us, 42% read physical books in the past year compared with 22% who read digital. Good. Support so 42 your versus 22. Now, this was a surprise to me that it wasn't higher. Only 19% did audio. What? I'm surprised by that. Really? I mean, my wife, she listens to books morning, noon, noon and, and night. Noon and night, yeah. Like, constantly. I love it. I absolutely love audiobooks. I never thought I would. And then my friend Kate kind of convinced me to try one. Once I tried one, man, I was off it. to the races because it's a performance. Yes. It's, it's, it's an art form. Yes, it is. A great narrator, a great audio reader. Pooh. It's incredible. Off the charts. It's, it's incredible. acting at its finest. So anyway, only 19% read audiobooks. Um, digital books like your Kindle mm-hmm. or your Kobo, those are most popular among the heaviest readers. So those people that are in that 1% who really? read more than 50 books oh, a year, they read a lot of digital. Now, this, art, this article is presuming that's because it would take up a lot of shelf space. I see. If you were reading that much. Sure, sure, sure. So... So that, you can store a lot of books on your Kindle. Right. right. Um, audiobooks are read mostly by people who are under age 45. Oh, really? Yeah. Only 9% of readers over 65 do audio. Really? I, I would think that'd be the inverse. Right. Lex, do you do audiobooks? I don't, but I probably should. I think I would like them. Only when I'm driving, though, probably. Right, yeah. right. Because, Long trips. Because when I would sit down, because I did try audiobooks when I was younger, and I would just sit down and like lay in my bed and hang out, and I my brain would just go into a different dimension, right. and then I'd come back and go, oh, I just missed the last five minutes of this audiobook. I could rewind it. <laughs> I'm sure that's problematic for a lot of people, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. I do a lot of rewinding. In yeah, audiobooks. Right, right, but right. I, at first I thought that that was going to be, like, if I had to rewind, then I was going to hate myself and not do it. Where Now I'm just used to rewinding. Right. It's fine. Like, who cares? You go back 30 seconds and listen to it again. Okay, books and then podcasts also. And that's another problem, right? Well, yeah. Podcasts aren't mentioned. This, okay. is, this is strictly reading okay. in this article. Um, but 85% of people who were surveyed own at least one book. Wait, 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 wait. One audio book or one book? One physical book. Well, let's hope yeah. so. And 25% own at least 100. Oh, yeah. That's pretty good. 7% of us own more than 500 books. Mm-hmm. I have books in storage containers in my basement. Oh, my gosh. I, pro- I probably have 1,000 books in my house. Yeah, yeah. I probably do. Uh, the yeah. most popular genres. Um, what do you think? you have any guesses? Yes. Um, uh, romance and horror. Interesting. Okay. So they're not the two most popular. Okay. The two most popular, but they are, they are mentioned in the list. Yes. The two most popular genres are history and mystery. History and mystery. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. History and mystery. Um, romance is favored, no surprise, by women. Women 
are twice as likely to read a romance right. as a man would. Amish romance. <laughs> That's not listed. Okay. But sci-fi flips it. In sci-fi, men are twice yeah, as sure, likely sure, to sure, read sure. it than women. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So, and men tend to like history more. Women tend to like mystery more. Uh-huh. But they're both. There are a lot of women and men who cross over in right. those categories. Yeah, sure. So, are those categories, Lex, that you read history or mystery? No, not really. I mean, more mystery than history, of course. Really? But I'm more of like a fantasy reader, right? Uh, which sci-fi. is mm-hmm. right, and and that is uh, in keeping with your age, because. Uh, y- Adults who are between the ages of 14 and 25 go for fantasy. Huh. Interesting. As their as their top category. Um, people in their early 30s and 40s, history, and over 40s, mystery and crime. Hmm. Yeah. And cry, uh, true crime and thrillers hit harder with older readers. True crime and thrillers. Yeah. Yeah. I have no interest in that true crime. No, genre. I don't really. It's kind Even of depressing television. to me. Me too. Uh, white readers prefer mystery and crime. Black readers gravitate toward religion and spirituality. Interesting. Oh, that's really fascinating. I wouldn't have guessed that. Neither why. No, no. Um, and the last thing, how you organize your books. Oh, okay. Okay. Do you have a method? Uh, I have good intentions to have okay. a method. Um, well, the, the most people don't organize their books. Oh, really? The majority of people don't organize their books. Uh, my preferred method is by genre. Okay. Now, I know some people organize alphabetically. Sure. By, by author. Right. Or by title. But um, no, I, 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 like I would have like my, my theology books, right. religion books, right. my sports books, my history books, my baseball books. You know, I've got that. Yeah. What I need is another book, uh, book A bookcase. Case. Yeah, I yeah. need more bookcases. Right. So I've got these books that are like buried in the basement and that I want to see again. Right, exactly. Of I mean, course. not read them, but I want to see them. Of course. Right. Lex, do you organize your books? Only by series. Like, I'll put, oh. I'll put them in, sure. like, squishes of series, but then I won't, I won't do anything further than that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you? Are you organizing? Oh, yeah. Are so you? I have a split. I have fiction in one place, and I have nonfiction in okay. another. Mm-hmm. Fiction is alphabetized by author. Nonfiction is by genre. Okay. Is there anything in this article? Where's this article from? This is from today's Washington Post. Okay. Is there anything about book covers, cover yes. art? Well, nothing about cover art as far as what what impact it has. But there is like a, a decorator trend, which I despise, which tells people to organize their books by cover color oh, of spine, what? which is the worst, That'd be the worst. dumbest Who cares idea. about that? If I walk into your house and your books are organized by color, you don't read. Wait. Okay. You bring up a very particular thing. When you go visit. I love to look at people's I've, bookshelves. Uh, I can't get exactly, enough of it. Of course. It's like looking in someone's underwear Does it? It tells you something about it's, the person. It's intimate and like it te- yes. it's so telling of everything. Yes. Right. Wait, Lexi just cringed there. <laughs> what, how many people are, are you going to their house and then going into their underwear? You're not, but I'm saying okay. it's just, it, that's it's a, just... That's a relief. It's intimate, right? It it's is, like, right? It, it tells you so much about the person that they wouldn't necessarily tell you. Of course. There it is. And, you know, it's... It's not even a, an intentional tell because no. it's a personal thing. Right. Right. I love okay. So and as far as book covers, to me, I mean, you and I see so many books. It's vital. Wait, let me just say this. We used to see so many books. Yeah, we don't see nearly as not many Not nearly. The pandemic has changed that tremendously, which is a blessing in some ways. But if it has a bad cover. Forget it.
close out today's show, mm-hmm. John, I've got more celebrity birthdays Holy for you. Smokes. I mean, we didn't do celebrity birthdays for like months. A long time. And all of a sudden, no, it's it just a seems like that there's... Well, there's people are born every day, and some of those people are celebrities. People are born. People are born every day. Um, so I have three for you today. Okay. And I want to start with George Foreman. Oh, George Foreman. Yes. who has heavyweight champion in the world. Right, and who has the, what, eight sons that are all named George? Yes. Mm -hmm. And, of course, George Foreman was a uh, a champion in the ring, but known to most people today, of course, as the purveyor of the George Foreman grill. Right. Which Which I had three different iterations of. And you you bought them all online uh, at yard sales? No, I bought them all at yard sales. How'd that work out? I mean, they worked out fine. I'm sure it made George Foreman fabulously wealthy. Yeah, he he made so oh. much more money yeah. with the grill than he ever did boxing. Yeah, having his face pounded as opposed to standing in front of a camera. Exactly. It goes a long way. Do you still have one? No, I don't. Okay. How old do you think George Foreman is today? Well, I, I, I'm old enough to remember George Foreman in the ring. Okay. So um, he's in my neighborhood. I mean, although not that close. Uh, I would say George Foreman, 70, hmm, I'll split the difference, 75. Exactly. Hey! He's exactly 75. Yes. He's exactly 75. Very nice. Ding, ding, ding. Okay. Uh, the next person uh, who's having a birthday today, yep. uh, someone who is a well-known recording artist, Lexi, hit it for me. Oh, this is a horrible song. Don't you hate this song? Horrible song. Wait, let's listen to it for longer. But that's just, it's like nails on a chalkboard to me. He's a star. He is a star. I can't, why? Rod Stewart. Yep. Well, it was of the time. Oh, man, do I hate that song. Okay, well, how about um, post-rock and roll where he's doing... The standards? Yeah. Isn't he horrible? (laughs) Who told him he was good at that? I mean... He's had a career of you know of, of post rock and roll with the standards. How old do you think Rod Stewart is? Hmm. I bet he's uh, uh, he's pushing eighty. Uh, I'd say he's eighty. He's seventy nine. That's very good. Oh, holy smokes! All right, and last but not least, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's a funny song, too. It's a great song. You know who that is? Tell me. Pat Benatar. Pat Benatar is fascinating. She's been married... To that her guitar player. Forever. For, I bet 50 years. I bet. I love her. Yeah, I love her, it's too. It's a great voice. And she's aged fabulously. I haven't seen her. Oh, she looks terrific. And she sounds terrific. Yeah, she sounds great. Okay. Uh, and she has a daughter. They have a daughter who's a singer. Really? Also a good singer. Boy, uh, this is a shot in the dark. Um, mm. Remember Love is a Battlefield? <laughs> yeah. I love that song. Pat Benatar. Uh, Lexi, you know who Pat Benatar is? I do. You know okay. the song, yeah, yeah. Um, 72. 71. Hey. Wow, hey, that's good. very good. Excellent, thank very you. Good. Very good. Yeah. Very nice. All right, well, happy okay. birthday to ha- all those celebrities. Happy birthday to Pat. And it's your birthday, too. Pat, George, and Rod. Yeah. Okay, if you had to rank them. In uh, order of, like, your favorite. George Foreman, Pat Benatar, Rod Stewart. Uh, George, Pat, 
Rod. Okay, there yeah. you go. <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know what? We're unfair. We're unkind. Because maybe Rod Stewart's like a fabulous guy. I'm sure, right? I, I never said he wasn't a nice guy. And his guy. staying power, right? I, but I, I really hate that song. Yeah. And I, his standards thing is just unlistenable. But look, he's been around, I think, since the 60s. Since the 60s. That's a, that's a gigantic Probably. achievement. Yeah. That's a career. So, well, it's definitely a God career. Anyway, thanks for being with us. Pray for peace in this dark and cantankerous world. Thanks for being with us. The Ride Home with John and Kathy, a production of Salem Media Group. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.